if you will, to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis is just it's what comes next. We've got to deal with it because it's what comes next. Um, there have been a few passages in this journey through Genesis that don't get preached very often. The genealogies of Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 10, Genesis 11, Genesis 36, um, the War of the Kings in Genesis 14, uh, with one of my favorite names in Scripture, Cheddar Laumer, uh in Genesis 14. Then we saw the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34. Not an easy text to get through. You just don't hear very many passages, very many sermons on those types of passages. And you've heard me refer to them as flyover passages. I've said, you know, that uh, these are the kinds of passages we read in Fast Forward. And we come tonight to one of those. Uh, probably the last one that we would classify as in the book of Genesis. But I hope that... If anything in our time through Genesis has has resonated with us, it's that all Scripture is inspired by God, and and and, and even these passages that uh, get neglected. I hope you've come to love God's Word more through these types of passages, because I have really enjoyed teaching them, and I almost regret that this is our last one like this in Genesis, uh, because I've had fun learning myself how to present them in a manner uh, that is edifying, I I hope. And I hope that is the case tonight. Um, Genesis 38 is the awkward tale of the awkward encounter between the fourth son of Jacob, name is Judah, and a woman who turns out to be his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And we're going to see by the end of tonight why it matters. Some really interesting stuff at the end, I think. So let's start with the first five verses. Genesis 38, 1 through 5, it says, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Judah saw there there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shuah, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then he conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Kezib that she bore him. So, uh, just a kind of a, a, a matter of fact opening to this chapter, it, it seems odd when we're reading through Genesis that the subject of, of the text changes so abruptly from Joseph to <coughs> Judah. But remember... If you go back to Genesis 37, verse 2, it says that these are the records of the generations of Jacob. So really, while Joseph is the main human character of the last 13 chapters, 14 chapters of the book of uh, Genesis, it's really about the sons of Jacob and what they are doing. And when, when we understand that in that context, it makes sense that this episode with Judah is here because Joseph is now in slavery in Egypt. We see this at the end of chapter 37. He's sold to the Ishmaelites who sell him to Potiphar. We'll pick that back up in chapter twenty-nine or 39. But what happens here with Judah is the next major thing chronologically to happen with the brothers. In fact, it's the only episode we read about that's distinct from Joseph for the rest of this book. So we read, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. And that is the impetus for why this is in Scripture. Because 
Judah has departed from his brothers. That is a significant statement because it signals that he is departing from the divine purpose that God has made for the sons of Jacob. Uh, if we recall, and of course we've been over this many times now, but Yahweh has made a covenant. And He has made that covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And the sons of Jacob have a significant role to play in that. But Judah has departed his brothers. Now why has he done that? Well, it could be that he was going through a spiritual crisis. In fact, I would say he was probably definitely going through a spiritual crisis after what happened in chapter 37. He is the one, and we saw this a couple weeks ago, he's the one who stepped up and said, let's not shed Joseph's blood, let's sell him for profit to these Ishmaelites, these Midianites who, who are coming along our way. And so that's what they did. And then they go back home and they deceive their father Jacob with the story about the animal and the, the, the coat. And Judah plays along with that. So with, with Reuben, the firstborn, remember, having his birthright stripped from him because of his adultery, Simeon and Levi are uh, not looked at as leaders within the brothers anymore because of what they did after Dinah was raped in chapter 34. Judah is, is sort of the de facto leader now among the brothers, and it very well may have sent him into a guilty spiral. And I say spiral because look at what he did. He visited a certain Adulamite, Hira. Uh, that was a city, a, a town really, about eight miles northwest of where the family was at the time. And he's visiting his friend. His name is Hira. And while he's there, he sees the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And he takes her as a wife. Why is that significant? Because he has not learned from what has been right in the past about his family. Uh, when we when we start to mix with Canaanites, there's problems that come. And now he's taking one as a wife. And all of the anecdotal evidence surrounding this chapter suggests this woman who's not even named in the text, which maybe is a hint that, that, that this is correct, she's fairly reprehensible. She She's a, a spiritual catastrophe, likely a worshiper of all the pagan gods and goddesses of her people, she probably had heard Judah speak of his God, Yahweh, but has rejected him, and still he is taking her as a wife. So they have three sons together, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Shelah was born in Kezeb. That's right outside of Adullam. So let's move on. Th verses 6 through 11 say this. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So from Joseph's being sold into slavery until the time 
in chapter 46 where Jacob and all of his household are going to go into Egypt. This is about 22 years between those two events, which likely puts what happens in chapter 39 with Joseph before these six verses we just read. But again, we're talking about Judah right now. Ur was probably in his late teens when Judah decided to take a wife for his firstborn son, this woman named Tamar. But as we see in verse 7, and I don't know if this is the first time we see this exact phrase in Scripture, but I know it's not the last time we see this phrase, especially in the Old Testament. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, evil in the sight of the Lord. And we're not told specifically what that evil was, we just, it must have been pretty bad. It, it, I mean, considering that Judah was still alive at this time and the Lord hadn't taken him out, whatever Ur was doing, whatever his lifestyle was, whatever he was doing, it, it warranted from God an immediate and divine death sentence. It was that grievous. It was that egregious. And so that leaves Tamar a widow. This woman who is supposed to give birth to the heir, Judah's heir, is now a widow. And that points us to something that's not obvious on the surface because the events of Exodus and Leviticus and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy haven't happened yet. They're still hundreds of years away from happening. And so that means that the law has not been given. The law comes through, through Moses on the mountain. It has not been given yet. But still what we see here is that there are foreshadowings of the law of Moses in place already in the culture and in different cultures around what we would call Canaan. In fact, if you know your ancient Near Eastern history, you're going to hear about a guy named Hammurabi, Hammurabi's Code. And it was a code of laws that many people have compared to, in some respects, the, the law of Moses. And there were other codes in different areas of the Near East, uh, the Middle East, that have similarities. So it's likely that some of these codes were already in place among the people. It was just understood. What was the code we're referring to then? Well, Tamar was a widow. And she was the wife of the firstborn. So she had a right to be mother to the heir. So Judah tells his secondborn son, Onan, perform your duty as a brother-in-law. Go in to raise up offspring for your brother. And it's a foreshadowing of what we're later going to see codified by Moses in the Old Testament law, in the law of Moses. It's something called Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. And uh, it, it comes into play in, the, in the, the life of Ruth. If you recall Ruth, her husband dies. They, she, Naomi dies. Or not Naomi. Uh, her husband dies. Both her sons die. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. The other daughter-in-law goes back home to where she came from, but Ruth goes with Naomi into Israel, back into Israel. And there they come across Boaz, and he is a relative. He acts as a kinsman redeemer uh, of the childless widow, and in that case they end up bearing a son who's the grandfather of King David. And we begin to see how that all plays in. But here, Genesis 38, long before that, Onan goes into her, but he wastes his seed on the ground. I'm not going to go into that. You, If you're old enough to know what that means, you're, you know what that means. But uh, he, he, he does this intentionally. He, he, he knows any offspring he has from Tamar are not really going to be considered his. They're going to be considered his brothers. 
And so rather than take up the responsibility of this custom, he uses Tamar to gratify his flesh, to gratify his lust. He wants sexual intercourse without the responsibility that comes as a result of that. And we see that everywhere today. We see that um, in, in the number of deadbeat fathers in our society. We see it in the number of abortions that women seek. And just as God is displeased with both of those things today, he was displeased with his here. And so Onan, he, God, took his life also. So we're down two sons now, Judah is. That leaves Shelah, number three, and Judah tells Tamar to wait until Shelah grows up enough. So he may have been just a little bit on the young side, but that's not the real reason he doesn't give Shelah to Tamar. We see it in verse 11. I am afraid he too might die like his brothers. So Tamar unless something changed, was going to remain a widow, and Judah even tells her to go back to her father's house. Now what that reveals about the sons of Judah is that they were likely more influenced, at least on a spiritual level, by their unnamed Canaanite mother, rather than by their father who, although he had a lot of problems, still had a a nominal fear of the Lord, of Yahweh. And Judah's fear that Shelah might also die reflects that Shelah was no closer to fearing Yahweh than either of his two older brothers. So Judah is going to protect his other son and and simply send Tamar away. And maybe the whole thing will be forgotten about. Well, verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up with Judah went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Herah the Adulamite. So same friend as before. But note that phrase, after a considerable time, because that tells us, well, Judah's wife dies, so now Judah is a widower. But the key phrase is after a considerable time, indicating that Shelah would have been old enough by now to be given to Tamar, to, to raise up offspring for his oldest brother Ur. And obviously that doesn't happen. So instead, Judah and his friend, they go up to Timnah. Uh, when the sheep shearing happened, there were usually these cultural festivities, kind of a party atmosphere, and uh, the worship of the deities and stuff. So that's what's going on at Timnah when we get to verse 13. So let's read 13 through 23 now. This is the longest portion of our text here. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face, So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, And she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. 
When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at a name? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So Judah may have been trying to forget about Tamar, but Tamar obviously did not forget about Judah. And it's very possible that during the time she was in Judah's house, during the time she was married to Judah's oldest son, that she became someone who feared the Lord Yahweh as well. In fact, I would say it's probable giving she was willing to go to great lengths to see that her right as the mother of the heir came to pass. Um, he, she may have been instructed by Judah in the, the time she was there about the covenant that Judah's father, that, that the Lord had made with Jacob. So uh, now the lengths she went to to see this happen... Let's not kid ourselves. The, the methods are obviously not to be celebrated, obviously not to be emulated, and it definitely involved some deception. But as we have seen in a couple other cases in the Old Testament, Tamar's actions are not condemned in Scripture. You won't find one ill word about the accent, actions she took. She's not criticized for what she did. Judah, on the other hand, is uh, seen as reprehensible in this chapter. Let's dig into that a little bit. Tamar had left her, her father's home at one point. She intends, it looks like, to follow Judah's God, only to be sent back by Judah himself. So as time goes on, you gotta want I mean, you, you gotta kind of identify with this woman. She's been left a widow, she's childless, she's alone in the world, she's back in her father's house, but technically she's still under Judah's authority. And no one seems to care about her. Um, so she takes matters into her own hands. She removes her widow's garments. She puts on a veil, wraps herself, goes to the gateway of a name. Judah sees her. That he takes notice of her indicates she probably acted in a way to gain his attention. But, of course, he, he thinks she's a harlot. He goes into her. She doesn't know who he is. Promises the goat, gives the seal, the cord, and the staff as collateral, and she conceives, and then she goes back home. And of course, as we just saw, when he sends the goat, we don't know who you're talking about. We don't know this woman. No one's been here doing what you say. And so obviously he doesn't want to ruin his reputation by digging into any deeper. And we read this, and it's ugly. Uh, this is every bit as ugly as the the chapter 34 with the rape of Dinah. Um, but how the line of promise continues from generation to generation, as we've seen in Genesis, it has not been without its hiccups. Abraham with Hagar and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, all kinds of drama there. We also need to remember that when we consider Tamar was a Canaanite, 
promiscuity was a way of life for women in that culture. Something, uh, if you dig into the history of the those religions, women were often expected to devote themselves to promiscuous conduct in service to their gods and goddesses in those times, in that area. So it's very important that it's noted that you know, Judah's friend asked about a temple prostitute. That separates her from a co- common harlot. It shows that even in her actions, uh, she did not want her actions to be viewed as the same as other common harlots. She was not in this for lust. She was not in this for money. She was in this to ensure her rightful place in the covenant family. Um, and obviously she longs for that, but it's being denied her. And again, Scripture doesn't criticize her, so we should be careful not to judge Tamar too harshly. But Judah, on the other hand, comes to recognize his sin. Look at verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff these are these. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not have relations with her again. Now, at the beginning of these three verses... Judah hasn't recognized his sin. Judah is going along to get along. He, he, he's fine and dandy. In fact, he's adding to his sin because he adds hypocrisy to his already uh, his sexual immorality, his lack of integrity in the situation. He adds hypocrisy to it. And when he's given this news, he's righteously indignant. He has every reason to be angry not knowing yet who this is. Uh, So to get this news about Tamar and harlotry and being pregnant without the added context, in his mind, she has disgraced the memory of two of his sons. She's embarrassed the third son to whom she's ostensibly been promised. And she's disgraced Judah as the head of the family, as the head of of, of this part of the family. And... Even in unholy societies like this one, there were penalties for adultery, and those penalties were often death. So he immediately declares her guilty, and she is to be burned. But when she's brought before him, he decides to interrogate her. And, and you know, it's, it's like Second Samuel. Remember when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then the prophet Nathan comes into him, and he begins to tell David a story. And what do you think about all this, David? Well, that man should be punished. That man should be killed. And what does Nathan say to David? You are the man. This is Judah's you are the man moment. Um, His seal. It's his cord. It's his staff. And it's his child. And he immediately recognizes his own sin. Look at what he says. She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. So Judah was willing to recognize that this woman who had deceived him by playing a harlot, a temple prostitute, this woman who was willing to do that was still more righteous than him. This, and, and this, 
you know, what, what he did was out of selfishness and ultimately out of lust. What she did was to preserve her rights, as crazy as it sounds. It should be noted that at the end of verse 26 that he did not have relations with her again. So it's not as if Tamar became his wife at this point. But there can be little doubt that at this point she is brought back into Judah's house. And Judah will care for for her and for the child from this point on. He recognizes it is his child. But there's a twist. Look at verse 27. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. And if you think back to our through our study of Genesis up to this point, there are some similarities here between Tamar and the births of who? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Like Rebecca, who had been barren, Tamar was in a situation where it looked like she would never have children either. And, and, and she's not going to be able to produce offspring and continue the, the sons of Jacob. Just as Rebekah was barren and was not going to be able to carry about this covenant that God had made with her husband and her grand, or with her father-in-law, Abraham. So uh, there's a similarity. Like Rebekah, she ended up having twins. Like Rebekah, there almost seemed to be a contest in the womb between the two over you know, which one's going to be firstborn. It's not... Uh, two two uh, nations are in your womb and they're fighting is what, what Rebecca is told by God here. It's not that overt, but there there seems to be a struggle going on. Uh, with, with Rebecca, her firstborn was who? Esau. He comes out looking like what? Red. Hairy. Well, here, uh, the one sticks his hand out and a scarlet, a red, reddish scarlet thread is put around it. And but then he pulls his hand back in and his brother breaks through. So like with Rebekah, with the second son, Jacob becoming more preeminent than the first, Esau, here the first son to make an appearance, uh, his arm, Zerah, means rising, he is supplanted by the other, Perez, which means breaking through. And Perez would later become the predominant brother. We'll see that in a second. But this is how the account of Judah and Tamar concludes. Well, I say that. They're all going to go together into Egypt with Jacob in chapter 46. Tamar will be included in that. Shelah and his children that he'll have by this time will be included in that. And Perez, and, and that they will be included in that. But there are some things to note here as we close this up. First, in Ur, the firstborn of Judah we see quite plainly that doing evil in the sight of the Lord will get you a death sentence from the Lord. Now, it's not as simple as us going outside and God striking us dead, although God can take us out at any time He wants to, right? Uh, and we are all due that death sentence because we are all sinners 
who fall short of the glory of God. It comes immediately for Ur. Again, we're not told exactly what he did, but lest any of us and all of us repent, we will face that same death sentence. So what does this tell us? Run from evil at all times. Run away from evil at all times. If, if something involves doing evil in the sight of the Lord, run away from that and let Ur be your warning. Second, using the law as a means of self-gratification displeases Yahweh and death will follow. Those who use religion as a means to please themselves, their actions are not hidden from God. And justice will come. Onan spilled his seed rather than fulfill his responsibility under God's... It wasn't codified yet in the law of Moses, but it was understood that this was his responsibility to go into Tamar and raise up offspring. He doesn't do it. So those who use religion to gratify themselves, however they do it, judgment will come. So we see that. Third, we see that repentance comes when we are willing to recognize our own lack of righteousness. And that's what we see in Judah. Judah comes to see that he is not righteous. He's not even more righteous than someone who pretended to be a harlot. Um, and to that end, the, the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector that we looked at from Luke 18 on Sunday really comes to mind here because our job is not to judge our own righteousness in relation to other sinners. We are responsible for judging our own righteousness with how do we measure up to Jesus Christ? How do we measure up to Yahweh himself? And so the answer, of course, is Romans 3.23 again. We fall so far short of the glory of God that it shows us our need for Jesus. And Judah, in the end here, seems to have done this. He, he seems to repent and, in a sense, return to the fear of the Lord. And, and this really does seem to mark a turning point in his life. Now, is he going to admit to Jacob, his father, what really happened with Joseph? No, he's not. But once we see Judah again later on in Genesis, a couple chapters later, we're going to see a, a different Judah. We're going to see someone who, who uh, wants to step up a little more than he had. Finally, fourth, I want you to see another reason this passage is included in the Scripture. And to do that, I want you to turn to the fourth chapter of Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. The eighth chapter of the Bible. Ruth chapter 4. It's only four chapters long, so if you get to 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. Um, I said a few minutes ago that Judah giving Tamar to Onan and then promising his third son, Shelah, was a foreshadowing of leveret marriage, which is seen in the law of Moses. Um, well, again, that has to do with Ruth's story. Um, and hopefully you're familiar with how her story ends. She Again, I alluded to it earlier. She ends up marrying Boaz. They have a son, Obed. Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has David. But look at the last paragraph of Ruth, starting in chapter or, uh, verse four, uh, 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of who? Perez. 
To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashan, and to Nashan Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. What we see here is, why is Perez mentioned? Because Scripture is connecting Ruth's leveret marriage to Tamar's failed leveret marriage. But in the end, it works out in this way. Tamar's predominant son, Perez, is in the line of promise leading to David, who ultimately leads us to Christ. If you want to follow the genealogy, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. So what we're seeing, why is this here? Why is Genesis 38 here? Why did God put that there? To show us the genealogy of the Savior. To show us more of what's going on in the genealogy of the one who will come and put an end to all this sin. It's really fascinating when you connect the dots. And it should be noted as we finish that we once again see how even the most awkward passages of Scripture are inspired by God to teach us. Because what comes of Tamar? She is one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Four women, all of them Gentiles, all all of them coming to be part of the line of Christ through some strange and sometimes sinful circumstances, but God using them to bring about the ultimate salvation for everyone who will ever believe in His Son, Jesus. And therein lies the evidence that God's promises are true, that all things do work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And Tamar, it seems that she became one of these people. And it worked out for her. And um, that sometimes means that what people mean for evil, God will use for good, as we see with Joseph and his brothers. But God does accomplish his perfect result. So the lesson for us tonight, the application for us tonight, is to press on and have the resolve of Tamar to see what is right done. Have the, 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 learn from the negative example of Ur not to do evil. Learn from the negative example of Onan not to use religion as a cloak for, for self-gratification. Learn from the repentance of Judah that when we repent, we realize how far short we fall. We run to, we run to the Lord. We run to Yahweh. And just as Tamar would one day go into safety in Egypt with Judah and her sons uh, because of the famine that's going to come, may we also realize that the true safety for us is in trusting in God's provision for us through His Son Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that even in these passages of text that are not popular, we don't see devotionals written about these um, we don't see books sold about Judah and Tamar. We still see how you are working all things to 
establish your nation of Israel and eventually your son Jesus Christ. And through those things, we, we see some negative examples to learn from and some positive examples to carry on ourselves. Father, may we be a people who runs from evil. May we be a people who, who don't use uh, religion to, uh, to sin, who, uh, who uh, will repent and, and, Lord, trust in your promises to do what is right. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for Genesis 38. And as we press on, may we press on in faith. And we ask this in his name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.